a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the, the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say the Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say the Damn Score offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, and we have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths, weaknesses, and places you can improve. Many coaching and critique services are expensive, not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamscore.com slash critique-crew or click on the Critique Crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. Welcome to episode 71 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities. That's right, the long, arduous process of couch surfing is over, and we officially have a place in the Minneapolis suburb of Burnsville, Minnesota. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. This open was recorded in the new Say the Damn Score studio in the spare bedroom in our townhome, but the interview itself was recorded at my brother-in-law's in Mankato, Minnesota. Today's guest is Greg Sharp, the voice of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. And he's the first guest to cover a team that I really consider myself a diehard fan of. For those who don't know, I grew up in Nebraska and loved the Cornhuskers for pretty much my entire life. And with that in mind, if I go a little fanboy from time to time in this interview, please forgive me. Anyway, without further ado, I'm happy to welcome one of my personal favorite broadcasters, Greg Sharp, onto the Say the Damn Score podcast. Greg, it's an honor. Well, it's my pleasure to, to spend some time with you today and uh, love talking about anything that has to do with sports or sports broadcasting. I read that you knew you wanted to get into broadcasting at the age of six or seven, that it was something you knew for your entire life. What moment did you know, and how did that knowing early, how did knowing early help you to direct your energies for the rest of your career? Yeah, it's really bizarre because I had no family history of guys being journalists or in the sports world, but I remember it was in, in the early 1970s, and I lived in Kansas City, and Kansas City used to host the Big 8 Holiday Tournament, and uh, some folks might remember that in the days of Big 8 basketball, they used to play a preseason conference tournament. They didn't have the postseason one. They had a preseason one. And I remember my dad and my brothers and my grandpa going down to the downtown Kansas City Municipal Auditorium and catching two college basketball games. And I just remember the wow factor. The little boy walking into the arena 
and seeing you know these these guys on the court and bright lights and the bands the pep bands going and I thought this is the coolest thing on earth and it was like I was bitten by the bug on that occasion and from that moment on I just knew this was what I wanted to do and it's I know that I'm very fortunate because I currently have some teenage daughters who were trying to find their way through life a little bit and uh, I knew at a very young age so I spent a lot of fall afternoons sit outside playing with my buddies monitoring college football games and doing my own scoreboard show to an audience of one. And so it was everything then from my, everything as I plotted my life out was kind of toward the the goal of being a sportscaster. And so I took a lot of journalism classes in high school, wrote for the student paper and uh, certainly looked for ways to get involved once I got to college as well. So I, I was very fortunate to kind of find my path that early in life. What age were you able to call your very first game actually on the air? Yeah, I was in college. Uh, I think I was either a freshman or sophomore. And, in fact, uh, Mark Bain, who is currently an assistant athletic director at the University of Nebraska, was a couple of years ahead of me at K-State, which is where I went to school. And Mark was doing some freelance work for some – it was like the high school football playoff season in November. And – one station had multiple teams they were trying to cover, and so they kind of freelanced out their broadcast. And Mark said, hey, I'm driving to Marysville, Kansas, to do a playoff game. Would you like to join me and, and do color for me? And I said, absolutely. So that was my first time on the air on an actual broadcast station to do that. And uh, then I got involved with a student radio station in Manhattan and ended up being a sports director at some point in time during that run of college. And so I called a, a lot of games once I got on that station in Manhattan, but um, sitting alongside Mark Bain, and now is an assistant athletic director in Nebraska, was my first first foray into calling a game actually on a, on a broadcast station. I know in my personal experience, I still have like one CD of of calls from when I was on the college station. They're absolutely horrible. No one will ever... No one else will ever get to hear them, but occasionally I like to listen to them for a chuckles, uh, for chuckles and giggles. Do you have any tapes left from that time early on in your career that you ever just pop in for fun? No, I do. Um, and in fact, here's here's an interesting story. We we uh, we the student station at K State did the Manhattan High School football broadcast at that time, and Manhattan made the playoffs one year and. Uh, the, the local broadcast, over-the-air commercial broadcast station at that time didn't do the games. And so here, as the students, we were the avenue for the fan base of, of that high school to hear the game. So they were in the playoffs, and they were playing Wichita North, who had a little running back who was really good. And this guy could scoot and run and had a college offer already. It looked like he was going to play major college football. That little running back was Barry Sanders. <laughs> and I remember calling that football game, and Barry Sanders is out there running around, scoring touchdowns left and right. Boy, what a career he ended up having at Oklahoma State and in the National Football League with the Detroit Lions. So I do have a couple of those tapes still laying around. I haven't listened to them for in years. Um, you know, just barely have gone through puberty at that time, so the voice was still pretty high-pitched. And uh, But, yeah, that there's no better way to cut your teeth than to actually just get in there and do it. And uh, that was a great opportunity for me and a lot of students that I was at school with a chance to call 
uh, high school football or, or college basketball or college baseball at the time is what we did in that student station. It was just a marvelous way to get my feet wet. That's a perfect example of why you should never mail in a game or go short on the preparation because you never know when you might get to call Barry Sanders in high school. That's incredible. That's exactly right. Any opportunity, I tell this to young broadcasters all the time, don't put yourself above anything. Any kind of opportunity you get, jump on it. Any, Even if it's just sitting there listening, sweeping the floor of the studio after a broadcast, when you're young and trying to get involved, do whatever you can, and uh, all those opportunities are going to help mold you into what you end up becoming. So how did you get your first professional opportunity once you were done at Kansas State? Well, I, I was I was a member of a fraternity at K-State, and a, a young guy who was a couple of years older than me had acquired to be the statistician and spotter on the K-State football network. And when he graduated, he recommended me to Mitch Holtus, who was the play-by-play voice of Kansas State at the time. And Mitch had me on board, and I did that for a couple of years, and that really got my foot in the door with WIBW, which is a, a heritage station in Topeka, Kansas, and had a longtime broadcast rights for Kansas State, and it was the, the uh, first originator of the Kansas City Royals network. And so I got into kind of into that circle, and that was my first full-time job was with WIBW Radio, where Again, my, one of my lessons to students is do anything that they ask you to do. Well, they wanted me to be uh, host their morning show on, on the AM side, which was to play some country music. And I didn't know country music from <laughs> – I couldn't I couldn't name three artists that sang country music. But I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I can do that. And jumped right into that. And so because of, of the fact that when I was a student, I was their statistician and spotter, it really opened the door for me to get in there and be a part of that. And so I was spinning country tunes Monday through Friday, getting to work about 5.30 in the morning, doing some morning sportscasts. That station then did a lot of high school football broadcasts, which that was they allowed me to do a handful of those as well. And that was kind of how I got started in that side. And then I eventually transitioned into TV. WWW was a radio-television combination, like a lot of stations were in the 60s and 70s and 80s. A lot of those have broken up now and broken apart from one another. But at that time, uh, they shared the same building, and the studios are right across the hall from each other. And so I made the jump to television, and uh, it was it was a nice jump also for my pocketbook. It was a little bit more a little bit more money for me, good exposure. And so for the next six seven years, I did television sports, uh, doing the ten o'clock sportscasts, and learning how to operate a camera and go out and do television interviews and stand ups and that type of thing. Still was able to do a little bit of high school play by play along the way. Uh, but that was a, a good good way to get my introduction into television sports as well. So I, I, it was a great learning experience, wonderful first job for me to be able to do the radio and then slide into the television side. So early in your career, you were able to work with Mitch Holtis, and I read that you also uh, were an intern with Kevin Harlan. Having mentors like that in your kind of formatory time, how important was that into what you are now? Huge. I, I think it was my through my junior and senior years of college, I got an internship at uh, KCTV5 in Kansas City. And that's when I really got to know Kevin. Kevin wasn't a full-time sports anchor for, 
for TV five, but he would fill in on the weekends. And I think he did three or four summertime weekends. And so I produced his sportscast for him and got to know Kevin pretty well. And, and uh, now I can't believe Kevin has a daughter who's doing in this profession and doing a lot of sideline reporting during college football games. Uh, it's just crazy to me that, that his daughter is old enough to do that. But got to know Kevin, uh, got to know a lot of great folks at, at, at Channel 5 in Kansas City and who, who've gone on to some, some big-time things and have, have remained friends as well. So that doing those summer internships, and that one paid me exactly zero. I didn't make a penny uh, that summer. A lot of times those big markets, they just know kids are clamoring for the opportunity. And But since I lived in Kansas City, I could stay at home and um, – you know, my parents said, no, we, we realize this is a great opportunity for you. So we'll keep putting a few dollars into your checking account so that you can still buy meals and that type of thing. But, you know, it's another sacrifice that you have to make in this business to kind of make it. So uh, a summer that there was no money coming into the account at all, but certainly a lot of great experience being added to my resume. I can certainly relate to that. I don't remember if we said this on the show or in the short conversation pre-show, but you mentioned you had two daughters who were still trying to figure out what they were wanting to do as they, I'm assuming, are approaching the college age or are in college. If Kevin Harlan's daughter is getting into sports casting, what would you tell your daughters if they wanted to get into sports casting? Well, my oldest daughter, who was about to be a sophomore at UNL, and, and she, she had thought about getting into journalism because her mother, my wife, I uh, was a longtime television anchor, so she's got parents who, who grew up in this industry, but I think she's kind of weaving away from that. But, but she's had a lot of questions about it. She's a big sports fan. She'll plop down and watch games with me on the couch. Uh, my middle daughter, who is going to be a junior in, in high school, uh, that's not her thing at all. And I, don't, I have a younger daughter who's just going to be 10 in November. She's not quite sure. The younger daughter is a interesting story that we can get into later because she's our Nebraska baby that forced me to miss a, a Husker yeah, football game. We were going to get there. Don't worry. Back in 2008. But, uh, you know, I, I would tell them I there's a lot of great opportunities. I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that our industry is opening their arms to more females to get involved in the sport because of the escalation of female sports in our country, which when I was just getting my teeth cut in the business, female sports were not a huge deal. They've become a much bigger deal in the last 15, 20 years. And I think they need more female voices reporting those stories and relaying their stories to people. Uh, so if one of them wanted to go down that path, I would certainly encourage them to, to take a look at it, but also point out the potholes that are there, which there are certainly many uh, in this business. Uh, uh, one of them being, sometimes the lack of, of available jobs and you know, you're not going to be the wealthiest person in the world if you can end up choosing this profession. So how did you get from the point that we were at where you were just getting involved with WIBW and local TV to becoming the voice of the Kansas state Wildcats? Cause that was your first real break into getting a major college play-by-play position. Well, as I mentioned, WIBW, which is, was my employer at the time, they were the rights holder for the Kansas State Network. In the mid-90s, uh, right at the time that the Big 8 became the Big 12, Mitch Holtis had accepted the job of the play-by-play voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. And he did uh, that. He did both for a year or two. But then the Big 12 came along with talking about a lot of nighttime television windows that they were going to be 
putting their teams in and, you know, Mitch is logistically looking at and going, well, if, uh, if the Wildcats were to play the Texas Tech Red Raiders in Lubbock on a night kickoff and the Chiefs play at noon in Buffalo the next day, that's not going to work. And I think he realized it was probably too much of a to, to do both. And so he stepped aside and I was fortunate enough to be elevated to, to the position of, of Kansas State's play-by-play. So just at the right spot at the right time, I was in the building had a great interest at done as I mentioned stats for a couple of years. I was even the sideline reporter for a couple of seasons of, of Kansas State football. So and filled in a few times for Mitch when there was a conflict between football and basketball. So I kind of been established as maybe the heir apparent, but you never know how those things are going to work out. And I was fortunate enough to be elevated to that position in nineteen ninety six. So Kansas State for many years was just kind of the doormat of college football in general. But you got to pick up right at the beginning of the Big 12, and that was kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, the the golden age of Kansas State football with Bill Snyder and I think Michael Bishop maybe was their quarterback uh, back in that time. What was it like covering those teams, knowing how starved that fan base was? Yeah, it was a, it was a really good year. They had just really gotten pretty good about two years before I took over, but took it to another level once they became members of the big 12 conference. And I remember Mitch was kidding me, but my first season of doing Kansas state in 1996, the Wildcats earned a, a bull bid to the cotton bowl. So, you know, just one of the, the first time the school had ever been involved in one of those big time traditional college football bowl games. And Mitch was like, wow, I hand you the range and you immediately get a cotton bowl bid. Um, but the, the fan base was in seventh heaven because they had not been to, things like the Cotton Bowl ever in the school's history. And a uh, terrific run. Michael Bishop arrived on the scenes in 1997, and that year ended up in a Fiesta Bowl where he uh, had a pretty good duel with Syracuse's Donovan McNabb in that Fiesta Bowl. Kansas State prevailed in that game. And then uh, a magical undefeated regular season in 1998, which the Wildcats, uh, and it haunts me to this day. They were in the Big 12 championship game in St. Louis playing Texas A&M, had a 12-point lead starting the fourth quarter. And there had been some results early in the day that were, were going to allow Kansas State that they held on to win that game to play for the national championship in a couple of weeks. And the Wildcats lost the lead and lost in triple overtime to A&M in St. Louis. And um, like I said, that one still haunts me. That. There's, there's two games in my broadcast career that haunt me. That's one of them, and the other one would be Nebraska's 2009 Big 12 championship game against Texas where it appeared for 30 or 45 seconds like Nebraska had won the game before clock operators deemed it that there was still one second left. So those are two ones that I'll still wake up sometimes in a cold sweat at night thinking about. If it makes you feel any better, I still also wake up in a cold sweat about that uh, Colt McCoy <laughs> game. But then I think about Indomitian Sue throwing him like five yards backwards with one hand, and it makes me feel a little bit better. But um, you're at Kansas State at this point. You're the broadcaster for your alma mater in the state that you grew up, probably thinking you're on top of the world. Before we get into the subsequent bad news that comes after this, I, I guess how happy were you at that time? Because you know what? A lot of us like to go after – and chase jobs, but it doesn't truly make you a happy individual. What was your mindset at that moment? Well, it was a great period of my life. I, I'd gotten married to, uh, so I outkicked my coverage, my beautiful wife, Amy. And so 
we were just starting to think about having a family and my first daughter was born in 1999 and here I am calling games for my alma mater and football's you know one of the top 10 15 programs of the country at that point in time winning a lot of football games and kind of the envy of a lot of schools around the country and and basketball wasn't very good but you certainly you certainly enjoyed calling Big 12 basketball so yeah things were really good it was a, a good time in my life I was also the sales manager for the for the Wildcat Sports Network and so I was selling advertising and um, yeah things were really good I I was really life was couldn't be much better than it was at that point in time and and then you know hey as we know in this business things can change on a dime and they certainly did when Kansas State went through a rights holder change and the new rights holder I think really felt like he wanted a different voice and that's where my days at Kansas State came to an end and in Oh, the summer of 2002. So when that rights battle was going on, uh, it was hard to figure out exactly what happened through research, but it looked like you guys were going to have kind of a dual broadcast system for a little while because of something contractual that was uh, ruled by a judge. What happened that that was not a thing? Well, the new rights holder... You're, you're right. The, uh, the WWW signal is 580 on the AM dial. And since the night, since that station became a station in the late 1920s, they shared the signal with Kansas State University, who had an extension radio that they played Monday through Friday for five hours in the afternoon. So WWW 1228 would sign off the air. And KKSU would sign on at 1230, and for the next five hours, they had the broadcast signal. Well, part of that contract between WWW and Kansas State was is that that signal would always provide a broadcast of Kansas State football. Well, that was a contract that dated back 60, 70 years at that time. And so when a new rights holder came in, WWW folks said, well, that's fine. You want to give the broadcast rights to this new company? But the 580 signal is obligated to do their own broadcast if they're not the rights holder. And so we, we will continue to do that. Well, Kansas State was appalled at that. And they had a new athletic director at the time that wasn't really very familiar with the language of the contract. So the new rights holder said, well, Greg Sharp, you've been the guy. Here's the, here's the salary. Well, it was a pretty good pay cut from what I'm currently making. And WWW says, well, we're not cutting your salary. and you, We'd love to have you stay on and do the football games. And so my decision at that time was, I'm going to stay with these guys. They're keeping me at a certain salary rate. And that's where the, the departure happened. The, the, the tough part of it and the, the pull the rug out from under me moment was is that we were prepared to do a broadcast on the Tuesday of the first game. We're all set. We have our announcers in place. Everybody's got this, so we're thinking it's good to go. The ads have been sold, and then there was a you know one of those eleventh hour agreements for for Kansas State to sell their part of that signal to the company that I work for, and so you know what was that seventy two hours so before the first football game, I found out that I wasn't going to be calling Kansas State football anymore. So it was a crazy time in my life, um, a lot of a lot of name calling, finger pointing back and forth, and I. Unfortunately, I got caught up in the middle of that, but hey, that's that's life sometimes. You know, I was on a much smaller level, but I'm sure the emotions were very similar. I lost, I covered a small college team for five years, and then they, for 
advertising and money purposes, changed the rights to our competitor station and got a new broadcaster for nothing that I had done. And I just remember being mad at everybody for probably about a year. How long did it take for you to kind of get past the the angry stage? Well, I was certainly, uh, it, it certainly hurt. I mean, you're sitting there and you're prepared to do a game, and I even had my charts ready for the first game, and you know, had, had been doing doing it for the last six years, and then certainly loving every minute of it. And Kansas State football was a pretty big deal at that point in time, and it, it was it was difficult. I still went to the games. I, I still I had season tickets. I kept those. I still went tailgated. It was odd. People didn't quite know what to say to me when they saw me in the parking lot, but you know, it was my alma mater, so I went and kept supporting the team and uh, sitting in the stands and but yeah it was it was painful but I also knew that you know that I I had done really nothing wrong just got caught up in a bad circumstance and I knew that you know good things happen to people who are good at what they do and I felt confident in my abilities that that I would get another crack at at a, a division one job at some point in time and hey that's how things work out but Matt's probably not the right right verb um i don't know what was it was obviously confusing disappointing but i i wasn't mad because i knew what i was getting into i knew all the logistics of all i knew that that was a real possibility that that could happen in the 11th hour and it did so you had your about i believe six year kind of time your walk in the desert so to speak where you weren't the voice of a major play-by-play program before you got the nebraska gig what went on in your career and your life during that time? Well, uh, WRW created an afternoon sports talk show that I hosted. Uh, they, they made me the operations director and program director for that station. So I oversaw the news talk uh, station, also a country music station. We also had a, an ag network and a news network. So I, I oversaw the personnel of that at the daily talk show. In 2004, so two years later, Mark Bain, there's a name that we talked about earlier in, in this, that he was now at Nebraska as assistant athletic director. And one day I got a phone call from Mark saying, Greg, we are, we are putting together a third-tier television package to do oh, eight to ten men's basketball games and a couple of women's games here, and we're looking for a play-by-play guy. Would you have an interest in doing that on TV? And there my television background came into play, but I was certainly – familiar with TV and the IFBs and all those things that go along with that. And I said, absolutely, we'd love to do that. So beginning in 2004, Nebraska, along with Fox Sports Midwest, employed me to do those um, those basketball games. So I kept my hand in it. didn't affect my day job at all, so I still had that. And then the Nebraska thing. And, and then the basketball package turned into a couple of football games a year. And a lot, of, a lot of the folks will remember the days of pay-per-view where there were a couple of Nebraska games a year that weren't picked up by network television. And so they would, they would offer it up as a pay-per-view and people would pay twenty nine ninety nine or whatever to get the broadcast of Husker football. And so I did, I was doing one, sometimes two of those games a year, a couple of those during the Bill Callahan era. And so that's kind of where I got my introduction to Nebraska, which certainly made my mother pleased. My mother was a, a UNL grad back in the 1950s. And so she was thrilled that uh, I was doing some stuff for the Cornhuskers. And then eventually getting the break to becoming the full-time guy for the Cornhuskers. I I mean, I know the story. It has more to do, I believe, with uh, Mr. Bame, but I'll let you do the telling because you're the master storyteller here. 
Well, it was a very bizarre situation. Uh, it was the 2007 season. Jim Rose was the voice of the, of the Cornhuskers. I had done two pay-per-view games already for Nebraska that year. Their season opener, or no, it wasn't their season opener. It was like game three. They played Ball State in just a wild football game where the Huskers survived a huge upset from Ball State. And then I had done a conference game in the middle of October against Oklahoma State, which for a lot of Husker fans would be a very low moment in Husker football history. Oklahoma State was just picking apart the Huskers at Memorial Stadium. Uh, the very next day, the athletic director, Steve Peterson, was, was removed from his office. Um, and then Tom Osborne was elevated to the interim athletic director. Well, there are three games to go in the season, and I hadn't done a Husker game for a couple of weeks. So I think that Oklahoma State game was mid-October. And I'm sitting at my desk in Topeka at WWW. It's about 5 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. I get a phone call from David Whitty, who's the general manager of the Husker Sports Network. And he said, Greg, uh, need some help Saturday. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what do you need? He goes, well, I need you to call the Husker game. Nebraska was set to play in Lawrence against the Jayhawks. And I'm like, my first question was, well, is Jim okay? I'd known, I'd known Jim Rose for 20-some years, uh, back to his days when he was a broadcaster at KSAL in Salina, Kansas. And Jim, Jim, I consider a friend, and I was concerned about him. And he says, well, I can't get into that. I just, I'm, I need a play-by-play guy at last second. You're pretty familiar with our team. Can you do it? I'm like, yeah, I, I can do it. And so I quickly updated my charts from a few weeks before when I'd done the game on, on TV and called that game. And as I'm walking out of the stadium that day, I told Dave, I said, well, if, if I'm available the next two weeks, if you need me to finish the season out. And that ended up being the case, um, even the, the, between the Kansas game and what was oddly enough, the Kansas state game in Lincoln, the next week, Jim announced that he was stepping down as his role as a voice of the Oscars. And so I finished out the season and made it known to the, the powers to be in Lincoln. I'm, I'm certainly interested in this job and I hope you'll consider me for it. And we uh, kind of let the holidays come and go. And then got started talking more in depth with them in, in January about the position. And I got hired in mid January and, and certainly have loved every moment of being in Lincoln, Nebraska and doing Husker football and baseball, the two sports that, that I handle here. So I remember that moment where you came in to replace Jim Rose and you said with him being a friend, if I remember correctly, it was basically not him truly stepping down is what I at least remember from the reporting, but it was more he was critical of the administration and they said, you're done. Did you ever have a conversation with him about uh, taking over the position at that point? Yeah, because Jim was still employed by the network. He was one of the top salespeople from the network, and so he continued to work on. And Jim was kind enough to kind of give me his blessing to, to do the job. And I think that, you know, Jim certainly, uh, he his passion for the Huskers is unmatched, loves Nebraska, uh, to this day loves Nebraska. And so, yeah, we had conversations, and, and fortunately enough for, for me, Jim kind of gave me his blessing to, to carry the torch, and uh, that made the transition so much easier. That and the fact that I've been doing all those Husker basketball games on Fox Sports Midwest with Matt Davison. So I already knew Matt pretty well. And I, and I just had gotten to know Adrian down through the years, dating back to my time at Kansas State. So the transition went, went really smoothly. So the first time that you got to do a Nebraska game filling in for Jim, was it a home or a road game? I can't remember what you said. 
Yeah, I was in Lawrence, and yep. it was that disastrous. I think KU hung oh. seventy six. We don't talk maybe, about that on anymore. Nebraska. It's like seventy six to thirty eight. And here's here's a, a funny side story to that. So after uh, after I picked my jaw up off the ground, being asked to do a game in forty eight hours, I asked David Woody. I said, "Okay, well, you got eleven thirty kickoff. What time do you want me there? Nine nine thirty? I mean." He goes, oh, no, you're you're hosting a two-hour pregame show. <laughs> I'm like, what? So he said, we're coming to Topeka tomorrow. This is on Friday. He goes, we'll sit down and go over the format with you. You can host the show. So I'm like, whoa, i got to host a show? He says, we'll have it all mapped out. It won't be hard at all. I'm like, okay. So um, I do the couple hours of, as you know, the Husker pregame show goes five hours before kickoff. So I did a couple of hours of that. Called the game which I think went fairly well, despite the fact the Huskers took it on the chin pretty good that day. And so then the game ends, and the engineer, Mike Kelly, is kind of standing in the back with microphones and battery packs, and I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, you're heading down now to interview Bill Callahan. <laughs> you can be kidding me. So here I go, tromping down, and I remember uh, the, the visiting locker room at Memorial Stadium in Lawrence is on the southeast corner. And that's where a good chunk of Husker fans were sitting during the game. And I was maybe 10, 15 yards behind Tom Osborne at the time. And the Husker fans were just yelling, Tom, he's got to go. He's got to go. And they're talking about Bill Callahan. You got to, they've got to cut the cord, Tom. This is ridiculous. So then I walk in, sit down. I had met Bill Callahan a couple of different times, but I'm like, well, this is going to be bizarre. He, I don't even know if he knows I'm, I'm coming down here. Does he know what's happened with Jim Rose? So it was a really bizarre scene. And I know dealing with coaches and you have too, Logan, that after really hard defeats, you don't say a whole lot around a coach. You just kind of sit there and do your interview and get out of the way. And so I'm just sitting there and, and, and Bill comes in, sits down and I go, hi coach, Greg Sharp. Don't know if you remember me. He goes, yeah, I do. And I go, tough one today. Sorry about the loss. And so we do the interview. It was, it was, he was very good about it. Very gracious about it. And I mean, I'm sure he, the last thing he's worried about is who's holding the microphone, but it was, it was a bizarre scene after a really, really tough day for the Huskers. So your first full year was the year after Bill Callahan was let go and Bo Pelini was hired. And early on in his tenure, things went pretty well. How much do you think the fact that your transition uh, to becoming the full-time broadcaster went smoothly was because that's when Nebraska started winning again. Sure helped. I mean, it's just amazing that people really appreciate your broadcast a lot more after wins, even though your broadcast is, you hope is as good week in and week out as it can be. But, you know, people seem to relate that to if you've, if you've uh, called a winner or a loser, uh, and, and Bo and I got along really well. I mean, uh, Bo knew I was kind of new to the job, was new to the job. He's new to the job. Um, and so we hit it off pretty well. And you're right. It was a fun period because Bo was able to kind of flip the switch in a hurry. There were some memorable games in my first season, a huge kick by Alex Henry to beat Colorado in the last home game of the year that secured a Gator Bowl berth. And so here's Nebraska a year after having a fire coach back in a New Year's Day bowl game, and then a tremendous win in the bowl game over a very talented Clemson team coached by Dabo Sweeney, and who was an interim coach at that time 
at Clemson. So I think it certainly helped that, you know, that the football fortunes turned in a hurry with both plenty jumping on board in 2008, the 2009 and 10 seasons both ended with Nebraska playing for conference championships and arguably could have won both of those games. Maybe should have won both of those games over Texas and Oklahoma. So it was a, it was an instant splash in the success for me jumping on board with Bo Pelini and, and Lincoln. So how difficult is it for you at that point? Because, of course, you become friendly with coaches. It's just the way that, in my experience, it's usually happened when things start to go wrong and remaining professional on the air. Well, you know, it's um, as, as I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, Bo was Bo hated to lose, and and Bo was, and that, I appreciated that. I'd rather have a coach that hated to lose than a coach that just, uh, you know, accepted another loss and kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, "Oh well." Bo hated for that to happen, so I, I had no issues with, that Bo would be upset after games. It made interviewing he was not he was a very difficult interview after losses because he just would give you one sentence answers, and you know we're trying to fill a certain segment of our post-game show with what you, you hope are a little bit more in-depth analysis of the game. and uh, it, it was difficult, but I can't imagine having to do those if we didn't get along during the week, and we certainly did get along really well, and that made it, made it easier to, to, to navigate through that. Uh, I, I, but I really appreciate Bo to this day. I still think it was probably the right move to, to make a change with Nebraska when it happened. It was the fan base, I think, needed it. And I think Bo Pelini personally needed to probably move on to something different. It looks like it's, he settled in quite nicely there at Youngstown State. And you guys, of course, had the incident where there was a mic left on or turned on by somebody on your engineering staff, and it was uh, some unflattering things about the fan base were recorded. And I don't want to necessarily go into what was said or anything like that, but how did you change the way that you did uh, post-game shows and stuff after that happened, and it was it went viral and went public. Well, it was a, it was a crazy uh, time because I think a lot of people felt like I was the one that, that out of the tape, and that wasn't the case at all. In fact, we didn't even know it existed for like a year. Um, what happens is, I would go down after Bo finished his press conference and I would be waiting in a room where we had a hookup that sent the had our signal going back to our studio. And I would go in there and we would converse for a little bit and then we'd start the interview. And so I was just sitting there with, I knew he wanted to vent a little bit. Anybody who's done broadcasting knows you've got coaches who sometimes want to vent before they sit down and, and do their interview. And that's their first chance to do that because they, try to hold it together during the press conference. And then they come in and, you know, you, you start, you just kind of let them get it out of their system. And then you turn the mic on. Well, the mic was on the whole time, but I, you know, I've got it sitting in my lap and again, did not even know that this tape existed for, it was 12 months. It, it, we did not know about it until the next football season after a game with UCLA, which Nebraska had lost at home, that this tape existed, but unfortunate, um, you know, I, I can't, I can't talk for people who made decisions to record that, save it, put it to somebody else's eye. That's, that was totally out of my control. And just as unfortunate for Bo Pelini, because I think he, he certainly didn't need that to, to come out. I think it really, it kind of, in a lot of ways ended his 
ended his tenure at Nebraska because I think nobody looked at him the same after that point. How difficult is it to switch loyalties from Kansas State, who you grew up rooting for and went to school, and then broadcast for a conference rival? That's a great question. And I've talked to several gentlemen who have done similar things. Bob Barry comes to mind. Uh, God rest his soul, the great broadcaster in Oklahoma who did both Oklahoma State and Oklahoma during his tenure, which would really be difficult. I think for me, Logan, it was because there was a gap, because I my, my last football season in Manhattan was 2001, and my first full-time season in Lincoln was 2008. So there was a seven-year gap in there where I didn't call Kansas State. Um, it, it, it was not real easy at first, uh, particularly for football, because I had become very good friends with Bill Snyder. And 2008, uh, he was not the head coach there. So that it really kind of quickened the, the pace that I didn't have to worry about. It. Now, he came back in 2009, made it a little bit more difficult. Uh, but the more time you spend around the coaching staff of the Huskers, you have fewer and fewer ties to your alma mater. Now, I still root for Kansas State to this day. I hope they do really well. And it certainly helped that Nebraska change conference after the 2010 season. But then I didn't, we, we wouldn't play him at all. But, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest thing for me was the, the time between when I finished my Kansas State tenure and when I started Nebraska. A lot of things had changed in there, and so it made it much more simple. And one of those times early that you were supposed to, I, I want to say it was the first time that you were supposed to do Kansas State and Nebraska you actually left for the birth of your child. A kind of yeah. bizarre and crazy story. Uh, let us tell, let us know about it. Well, my, my wife and I were expecting our third child. Uh, was due in after Thanksgiving. And so we're thinking, all right, this is like November 18th, 17th in Manhattan. It's the last overnight trip. She's like, we'll be fine. Everybody's going to be good. So I drive down to Manhattan Friday night get a good night's sleep, wake up, call back home. She says, yeah, we're good. Girls and I are going to go run some errands this morning. Good luck for the game. Great. Okay. So I pack up, head to the stadium, start my pregame show, just get into the end of the pregame show and get a text from her that her water is broke and she's headed to the hospital. Now I'm like, oh my goodness. And she's like, don't come home. It's our third child. I'll be fine. Well, then, then my family members are reaching out to me going, you're crazy. Childs aren't born every day. You need to get home. She's by herself up there. So we're looking around the booth, and everybody's like, well, what do we do? And Lane Grindle, who at that time was our sideline reporter, walks up to me and goes, Greg, I got this. You go. I got this. I'll just use your charts. I know both teams really well. Uh, and what, what sensed it for me is Tom Osborne, of course, was the athletic director at the time. He pops in the booth, and I look at him, and he goes, Greg, there will be a lot more football games. So that kind of cinched it. I finished the, I finished the pregame show which took it up to about an hour before kickoff. Obviously, I've already done the pregame sit-down with, with Bo Pelini, so that airs. And so then out of that, Lane Grindle pops on while I'm in my car making the two-hour and 15-minute drive back to Lincoln. Uh, Lane explaining that, that uh, Amy's in labor, and Greg's headed back to Lincoln for the birth of his child. And Lane did a great job calling the game. The Huskers had a big win, and, and Taylor Sharp arrived. How about this, Logan? About one in the morning. So I could have done the game and gotten back in plenty of time, but you just never want to take that chance. So we have had Lane, the now number three voice for the Milwaukee Brewers, on this show before, and he told the story from his side 
of what went down. What advice did you give him before you left? Oh, I just said, you got this. Um, Nate Rohr was our spotter and statistician at the time. I go, he will get you through this thing. And, uh, and, and that's exactly what Lane said afterwards. He goes, yeah, Nate Rohr just had it all out. He goes, man, that was pretty slick. Uh, I think the bigger issue was how did they replace Lane? And I think they ended up getting, here's that name again, Mark Bain, who was a former sportscaster, worked for Nebraska. He was on the trip, but they hooked him up and he did the uh, halftime interview with Bo Pelini and a couple various sideline updates, the coin toss, that type of thing. But to me, that was probably the bigger issue. Who could fill Lane's shoes? I knew Lane could handle, Lane's called hundreds of football games. I knew he'd be fine handling that duty. And uh, so the broadcast came off without a hitch. It was it was a it was a kick driving back to Lincoln, listening to the game. And uh, I thought they did a great job. You talked about having great staff to work with, great color guy, great sideline guy, all of that. And you had to go through your color analyst passing away with Adrian Fiala, longtime beloved uh, Husker, and replace him with Matt Davison. What was the most difficult part of that process? You know, when I when I got there and did those final games of 2007, it was a three-man booth, which is really odd for, for radio. You see it from time to time in, on television, but it was really odd. But you, know, you had Adrian and Matt and then me. So it was we did that in 2008 and then 2009. And Adrian's health was really slipping. He was having heart issues. Uh, it was just a really – it was really tough for him to get through the broadcast. In fact, there were – game or two that he even lost his voice and just couldn't even finish the game. And our, our broadcast, and we referenced this earlier, five-hour pregame shows, uh, we pack a lot into those broadcasts. They, they are really taxing on the body. And a lot of times we would do our pregame show not in the booth but at, at a location uh, outside the stadium, and, and Adrian was having to try to get around to these various points. And, and We'd actually made the decision as the, as a network that the 2009 would be Adrian's last, and he didn't he didn't like that decision, and I totally get that. But we just felt like he was having a hard time physically continuing to do the job, and, and Adrian was a husker through and through, and so it was a hard conversation that that our uh, David Woody at the time, our, our our network manager had to make after the 2009 season and tell Adrian, we just, we just don't know that physically you can handle this anymore. And, and I think, you know, I think Adrian after, after a year or so probably realized that it was probably the right decision. I mean, there was even a, I think our last road game of 2009, we were in, in Boulder. So you fly to Denver and then you bus on up and then you have the higher altitude, obviously up there where it gets a little tougher to breathe. Adrian, before we could get him off the plane, had to get some oxygen to just keep moving. So I, I think that scared all of us that we probably needed to to go to a two-man booth and just have it be Matt and I. And it, it was tough because Adrian didn't want to give it up, but I think deep down probably knew he needed to. And I certainly appreciate Adrian's friendship and guidance as, as my transition came to Lincoln. And, and I miss him. He was a fun guy to be around and everybody – new aid, and then holler out at him as he was walking around the stadium on game day. Matt Davison, as an analyst, uh, very opinionated at times. Do you ever have to reel him in, or do you just kind of let him be him? No, I, there have been a couple times, honestly, Logan, that I, I've had to say something to him, and, and last year was 
Oh, last year was hard on everybody. Us, the fans, the players, the coaches. It, it was really hard. And and the Ohio State game was, was really hard. And I, I thought Matt, honestly, I thought Matt probably went too far. And, and after that broadcast, I did talk to him about it. I said, Matt, I know you're disappointed. I know you're upset. But, you know, we, we also have to be as positive as we can for the players' sake. And so we did have a conversation last season. Uh, between the Ohio State game and, and the Purdue game. I think we had a bye week after Ohio State before we played Purdue. Uh, but we did have a conversation that week about, you know, I know it's frustrating. I know you are really upset, but we also have a job to do and try to be as positive as we can. So uh, you love the honesty, and people do love Matt's honesty about the program. It's part of his charm. Uh, but we also have to be cognizant of the fact, too, that we're, we're the mouthpieces for the university, and you, you just can't completely go go off on people. And so, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a tap dance you have to have, but you don't want Matt to lose what makes him good. But you also know you have a job to do for the university as well. There's another broadcaster in Omaha. Once you move to Nebraska, named Gary Sharp. How often do you guys get confused? All the time. Gary was a part of the Husker network well, 15, 16 years ago. He did some pregame coverage of the network. Uh, Gary left to go do some minor league baseball down in Florida and then came back all the time. And I, I can't speak for Gary. I'm sure he gets asked that a lot too, but I get called Gary a lot. It's really odd. I, 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 I tell my mom, I go, I think you misnamed me. I think I should have been named Gary before I moved to Nebraska, when I was down in Kansas, I got, I got called Gary a lot by people down there. I don't know why. Maybe it rolls off the tongue better, but it does happen a lot. I'll, we'll have guests at the booth during football season, and people will come in and go, Hi, Gary, nice to meet you. I'm like, it, it's Greg, but that's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it does happen a lot. Uh, we spell our last name differently. I have an E on the end of my last name. He does not, but uh, it does happen quite a bit. All right, we just have a couple minutes left, so I'll ask you a couple questions that I ask just about everybody on this show. One of the things I like to do is have somebody share a what I like to call broadcast horror story, a time maybe early in your career traveling the plains of Kansas where just everything went wrong with the location or the equipment or anything that was mortifying as a broadcaster at that moment that you look back on and laugh at now. Well, the one really was more of a television story. Um, when I was doing the 10 o'clock sportscast, sometimes you're waiting for a, a late highlight to come down the network feed. You can stick in one last home run or slam dunk or whatever it may be, or maybe you're, you're waiting for a highlight package to be sent to you for an entire game. And in our studios at WIBW, it was a it was down one hallway, through the lobby, down another hallway, into the studio. And then, of course, you sit down and you got to get mic'd up. Well, I hear the 30-second cue, and I'm still in my edit bay trying to slam one last highlight on. And then, of course, you know, you have to drop a tape off at master control. And so I'm in a mad dash sprint to get to my chair and get my mic put on. Now I'm out of breath, Logan, and so I can't catch my breath. I need it. I just need, you know, a chance to do a deep inhale and breathe out. Well, I don't have that opportunity because <laughs> commercial ends, fade to black, up you go, and here I'm out of breath. And I, people are calling the newsroom, worrying that I'm having a heart attack on the air because I can't catch my breath. TV sportscasts are four minutes long or something like that. 
I can't catch my breath the whole time. I don't think I really had a sound bite built into that sports cast. So it was, I am huffing and puffing my way through the entire broadcast. But what was really funny and kind of, kind of cute in a way is all the people calling and, and making sure that I was okay and not having a heart attack on the air. But uh, that's one that sticks in my mind. But, you know, I think if you, if you're in this business and you haven't done a high school broadcast from a really bad perch or bad location, then you, or a flat you haven't truck. really lived. That's, that's my thought process. Right. And, and I remember we were at a high school playoff game at a small ADBD school with a press box held like two people. So we did the radio crew. We're outside on a, on a table. It's freezing cold. The wind's blowing. You can barely keep your chart tape down. You're trying to call a broadcast. Your mouth starts to freeze up because it's so cold. The wind's just hitting your face. You know, you got a ski mask on or whatever. Uh, you don't forget those very often either. But again, as I said, if you haven't experienced something like that, you're not truly a sportscaster, right? You have to have had one of those or two of those miserable experiences to, to fight your way through. Okay, final question. What do you still do to this day to improve as a sportscaster? I get feedback. I, I ask a lot of people, how'd we do? How'd we sound? What'd we miss? I even do that during commercial breaks of our, our Husker football broadcasts. What are we not covering? What have we not answered? What What is something we're missing? Uh, I'll do that two or three times a game to Matt, to Ben McLaughlin, our sideline reporter, to whoever our spotter is for that day, and we'll get feedback. Well, I don't think we talked about this enough. Okay, all right, we're going to get into that the next time. I still do that a lot. Um, but I also uh, I like to just gauge what other people think of our broadcast. So I'm not afraid to ask somebody, what are you hearing? What, what do you think? In fact, I did that just a couple of days ago. We were in Chicago for the Big Ten Media Days, and I asked a couple guys that I really trust who listen to Sports Nightly, which I host every night on our network. What are you hearing on the show? Do you like what we're doing? What what can we do more of? Or what are we doing too much of? Uh, so I'm not afraid to ask for feedback. And you also have to be thick-skinned enough to take criticism and do something with it and not just let it roll off your shoulders. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do so be? Probably via Twitter. If you're following me on Twitter, uh, send me a DM. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get broadcasters from time to time that want me to critique tapes. I'm probably not the best at that. Um, it's hard. It's a little hard sometimes to get, uh, you know, they send you a wave file. That's maybe easier to listen to, but, um, you know, Twitter is probably the best way or just reach out to us here at the Husker Sports Network. All right. Once again, we are visiting with Greg Sharp. He is the voice of Nebraska football and baseball. And Greg, thanks so much for coming on. Logan, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Also, please reach out to the guests that come on the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.